0: grateful to be with you all this morning, grateful for each and every one of you that I see here today, and uh, grateful as well for Pastor Tom. Thank you for your words, and thank you for your leadership of our community. I'm grateful for you. And I'm also grateful for the air conditioning that is in here right now. It is so much better up here, I can tell you. And I'm glad today that we can at least be physically comfortable as we get ready to dive into what's actually a pretty uncomfortable passage of Scripture. But before we do that, I want to start with a a story from my my work with college students. I I work part time here at the church, but also with InterVarsity. And if you've been around for any length of time, you've heard us talk about our serve up trip, where we take hundreds of college students every spring from New England down to New Orleans to engage in service work, um, long term community development. And we take teams of Christian students who also bring their friends who are curious and exploring faith. And we do service work by day. And in the evenings have conversations around justice and inequality and suffering and racial reconciliation. And what the gospel and what Jesus has to say about these things as a way to engage with Christian faith. So I've directed a number of these teams. And a few years ago I was directing one team and I, and I met a particular student I want to tell you about. I'll call her Katie. She's a, a bubbly, sweet student from the University of Rhode Island and and she showed up in New Orleans. I met Katie. She was so excited, just bursting with energy. She had recently come to faith in Jesus and was really on fire about it. She was aglow, literally, with with the peace she had found with God, the newfound peace in her life. She had had a a pretty troubled past and and had found healing and forgiveness in Jesus and and was aglow with the peace that he'd brought between her and God and, and the peace that he'd brought into her life, and it was overflowing. And she was so excited to be in New Orleans because she could continue to extend the newfound peace she'd found in her life, both by serving and engaging the community in the city, but also she had invited all her sorority sisters to come with her on this trip. And a number of them said yes, and they were like her besties. So she was so excited that not only was she gonna continue to, to press into her, her walk with Jesus, but she's gonna take her friends along with her, and the, and the sisters were gonna serve together by day and, and talk together about Jesus by night, and it was gonna be so great. Then one night, partway through the week, It was late, and I was kind of debriefing the day with some staff colleagues of mine. We were just about to go to bed when Katie comes running up to us, tears running down her face, and just says, I don't want to follow Jesus anymore. We're like, wait, what? Um, Okay, I guess we're not going to bed right now. We pulled ourselves (laughs) together and and said, well, Katie, wow, that's surprising. Um, Could you say more? about what you mean, what, what's going on. And it turned out that that evening um, in the, the discussion around faith, her, her sorority sisters just really weren't feeling it. Uh, it was suggested at that point in the week that not only does Jesus want to address kind of the brokenness and the pain and the evil out there in the world and in a place like New Orleans where it's quite obvious, but actually he wants to bring healing and forgiveness and transformation to the brokenness inside of us and, and some of the, the selfishness and patterns and sin that, that are inside of us as well that might uh, contribute to the world out there. And whoa, they, they did not like that. They were Royally offended by the suggestion that, that they needed any kind of fixing, that they needed any kind of transformation or healing, that there was any, anything broken inside of them. So they were really annoyed and they took it all out on poor Katie and just like, this is so stupid, I can't believe you brought us here, what's wrong with you, I can't believe you believe this stuff. Uh, and just kind of piled it on. And, and to someone like Katie, who's very sweet and always had been kind of a very popular and well-liked person, this was new. This was unheard of, and, and she just could, kind of couldn't take it, and so um, got to the point where she said, well, I'm just not sure I want this anymore. So we'll get back to her story in a bit, but I think it's a good setup for the, the Scripture we're looking at today. So we are in a, a series this summer where we're looking at questions Jesus asked, there are over 300 different questions that Jesus asked people in the Gospels as a way to engage them, and the one we're looking at today is, is a doozy. He asked, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? And I want to open up with you to the Gospel of Luke where this question is found uh, to get a little bit of a larger passage that it's found in. So we're going to open up to Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 49. I believe this is uh, page 738 in the Pew Bibles that you have. And as you're opening there, just to give some context, a few weeks ago, Pastor Tom talked about a passage out of Luke where the gospel took a real turning point in chapter 9. Like up until then, people had been discovering who Jesus is, and and in chapter 9, they discover, oh, he's really the Lord. He's the Christ, the Messiah. And at that point... The, the gospel takes a pretty serious turn to where it becomes about, okay, now that we know Jesus is the Christ, what does that mean? What are the implications? What are the costs involved? What does it really mean to be his disciple and to give ourselves to following him? What are the implications? What are the costs? And this is still kind of part of that, that flow as Jesus is talking about the, what it means to be his disciple. And so in chapter 12, starting in verse 49, he says this, I have come to bring fire on the earth, And how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. And daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, and this is the word of God. And this this is tough. This is a tough and heavy passage, and I want to I want to dive into it, and and I want to zoom back in on the question now that's at the heart of it. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? It's a good question, I think it's a great question because it really makes us think, it really makes us kind of stop and, and examine ourselves and examine our assumptions. It's a great question because it defies simple, easy answers, but makes us kind of press in and, and listen to God and draw closer to Jesus to learn more of what it is that he means and what it is he has to say. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? It's a provocative question it's what makes it so great. And there is not quite a simple answer. So I hear the question, do I, do I think Jesus came to bring peace on earth? And I, I, I want to say yes. I, I, I hope so. I, I, mean, I sure hope so. I, mean, I was preparing this in the, the backdrop of Charlottesville and Barcelona and people trading threats of nuclear attacks on each other. I'm just thinking, well, I hope so. That with all the divisions and all the conflicts that exist in our world, We like to think that Jesus came to bring some kind of peace or that Jesus and the gospel and the people of God could have something helpful to contribute. So I hope so. Do I think he came to bring peace on earth? Well, I I think so. Didn't I hear something once about Jesus being the prince of peace? And and I don't think that was just from a Christmas card. That's actually in, in the Bible. So I think so, and yet... Here in this passage, he answers his own question by saying, no, I came to bring division instead. And so I don't want to just blow off what he says here, you know, to just give a simple, well, yes, of course he came to bring peace on earth. I don't want to disregard the full weight of what is in this passage we have today. At the same time, I don't want to disregard what the whole New Testament has to say. And so it's always dangerous to pull out one scripture and and build a whole idea around it and take it out of context. And so if this were the only place in the New Testament where Jesus talked about peace, if this were the only mention of it, then I think we would have to say, oh boy, maybe, maybe he's not into it. Maybe Jesus is more about division than about peace. If this were all we had to go by. But it's not. The Greek word here, that Jesus uses for peace is a very common word, erene, a word that can mean kind of wholeness, full life, complete wholeness, um, relational, personal harmony, interpersonal harmony, that kind of thing. And it comes up a lot in the New Testament. Almost a hundred times this this word is used in the New Testament. And almost every time, except here, it's a positive thing. and, And it would at least imply or explicitly say that yeah, Jesus came to bring peace, that Jesus is pro-peace, that he's all about it, and, and came to bring a ministry of reconciliation. So, do we think he came to bring peace on earth? I guess we, we can't quite say no, we'd be ignoring so much of the New Testament, but if we just say, well yeah, of course he did, then what do we do with this passage here? So, you see why it's a good question? It's been hard to wrestle with, to be honest with you, and, I, and I'm praying that, that God will bring us some clarity about it. It's, it's a tough question, because it does Defy simple explanations and it causes us to to have to learn more from Jesus and ask him, will you shape our thinking, please, around this? Because we think all kinds of things about peace, but we really want to be shaped by what Jesus has to say. Not blow off the whole New Testament, which proclaims the peace that Jesus came to bring, but not blow off this passage. The other thing that's so great about this question is that it really does cause us to examine what we think. It begins with, you know, do you think? I came to bring peace on earth, Jesus is engaging people here with, well, what do you think? What do you think I came to bring? What do you think I'm about? What do you think peace is? What do you think? It's causing us to engage and confront our own thoughts. And oftentimes, uh, our thoughts are not his thoughts. And what we think about peace may not quite be what he came to bring. And this is what Katie found out in her own way on this serve-up trip. I think her picture of the peace that Jesus came to bring was really, I mean, she could have her cake and eat it too. Oh, great, I've got peace with God now and I'm gonna have peace with everybody else and everyone's gonna love me and it's all gonna be so wonderful. She did not imagine a peace which also included some sort of division within the sisterhood, which also included some sort of unpopularity and... And not everybody being down or on board with what she was identifying with. She she experienced identifying with Jesus in a way that actually brought some ridicule and some scorn. And she just hadn't imagined that that was part of the picture up until that point. And it was a big crisis for her. And I think Jesus wants to disabuse us of any false notions of what is the kind of peace that he came to bring. If we think he came to bring a peace that is, is free of any kind of Disharmony, of any kind of division, of any kind of relational or social or interpersonal cost, then no. That's why he says such a strong no here. If you think I came to bring that kind of peace, no. You've got to know that there is also division that comes with it. He did come to bring peace, but if we were a peace-loving people, and race, and society, then perhaps his peace would just enter into our world peaceably and and nice and smooth. But we're not, and so it doesn't. The peace that Jesus comes to bring is often met with resistance by those who would want to uh, remain in control of our own kingdoms and keep things the way that they are. And so his peace does not just enter in nice and smoothly, but comes with division as well. I want to look at one more New Testament scripture that is one of the most profound pictures of peace that Jesus came to bring. And this is in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, and that is 828 in the Pew Bible. And this is a great picture of the kind of peace Jesus came to bring. Uh, Ephesians, chapter 2, is really one of the most profound Statements of the gospel message in all of Scripture. That the first half of the chapter is all about how God made peace between us and Himself by forgiving our sins and saving us by grace, and then the second half of chapter two is all about the sort of peace and reconciliation that flows out of that from God to one another, and the kind of reconciliation and peace that He makes between people. And we're going to start in chapter two, verse fourteen. And this is the Apostle Paul writing, and he refers to two groups here, and the two groups he's referring to are Jewish people and Gentile people, Jewish people and kind of non-Jewish people. And there had been some pretty significant hostility and conflict and division between these groups of people um, up until now. But Paul writes this in chapter 14, in chapter two, verse 14, one of the most profound and beautiful pictures of peace and reconciliation we have. He's speaking of Jesus, he says, for he himself is our peace, For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. This is just, this is beautiful. What a vision, what a picture. A dividing wall of hostility torn down. One new humanity made up of two groups, two peoples who were formerly at odds and divided from one another. It's a beautiful picture of peace. But it's not smooth and it's not without uh, it's, it's tension that comes with it as well. So I want to I highlight a few things about this kind of peace that we see in the New Testament here in Ephesians and throughout the rest of the New Testament. Three things that we need to know about the kind of peace that Jesus came to bring. The first is that this peace that he brought is Jesus-centered. This is a Jesus-centered peace we're talking about in Ephesians. It's all about Jesus. It is in Jesus, by Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus, under Jesus, all centered around Jesus. There's a lot of pronouns in here, he, him, his, but it's all about Jesus. We could replace them. But for Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. By setting aside in Jesus' flesh, Jesus' purpose was to create in Jesus one new humanity out of the two, by which Jesus put to death their hostility. Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far and who are near, for through Jesus we both have access to the Father by one spirit. This is all about Jesus, and that can be kind of a divisive thing. This is not, on the one hand, this is not universalism. This kind of peace that Jesus came to bring is not universalism. This is not all humanity magically becoming one. This is one new humanity made up of those who found peace with God through Jesus Christ. And that's a big difference. Again, this is not just all humanity magically somehow becoming one. This is one new humanity made up of those whom Jesus has reconciled to God and then to one another. And so actually not everyone is part of this one new humanity. Everyone could be, but this extension of peace that Jesus offers must be received, it must be accepted. And not everybody does. So it's not universalism the way that Jesus makes peace um, is by making peace first between us and God. This asserts that actually the most profound division that exists in our world, and there are some major, huge, profound divisions in our world, but the most profound is that between humanity and God. And everything else flows out of there. This is a Jesus-centered peace. It's not universalism, nor is it a human-centered thing. It's not, it's not our own human efforts and programs and... and, and striving to do it ourselves. This happens because of Jesus. How did Jesus make peace between Jews and Gentiles? He didn't start by just sitting them across from each other, helping them to look at each other and focus their attention on one another. He started by reconciling them first to God through himself. He didn't start by having them look at each other, but he made peace between Gentiles and God and between Jews and God, and out of that, They could be at peace in one new humanity with one another. The most profound division was not between Jews and Gentiles. It was between Jews and God, Gentiles and God, and and Jesus addressed that one first. And out of that became a whole new people, this one new humanity without a dividing wall of hostility between them anymore. He gave them a peace with God they could never achieve on their own, and out of that flowed a peace and reconciliation with one another that they could never achieve on their own. But it's a Jesus-centered thing. All from Jesus, by Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus, under Jesus. Jesus talks in the Luke passage we looked at by saying, I came to bring fire to the earth. And this could mean judgment, purification, that sort of thing. And Jesus did come to bring peace to the earth, but again, it does not fit in quite smoothly because there's a lot that resists his peace. And so there is some judgment, some purification that's necessary. And he says he came to undergo a baptism, which he's referring to his own death, by which he took on the judgment of God on our behalf. And so from now on, that is the dividing line. There are those who find peace with God through Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection on our behalf and those who don't. That's the kind of peace he came to first and foremost to bring. So peace in the New Testament is a Jesus-centered thing, a Jesus-centered reality. And we can't leave that out. That is the most profound thing we have to bring to the conversation. Second thing I want to point out from our passages today about peace in the New Testament is that peace is costly. Peace in the New Testament is a costly thing. Again, Jesus refers to the baptism that he must undergo. It, it cost him everything to bring us to peace with God. It cost him his very life. And in Ephesians, it's much more kind of graphically played out that it was in his flesh that this peace was achieved. As his body was put to death, that is how the dividing wall of hostility was, was torn down. As his body was broken and beaten, torn apart and put to death, it cost Jesus everything and it costs his followers a lot to walk in the peace that he came to bring and to extend and proclaim the peace that he came to bring it's always been a costly thing for followers of Jesus to stand with him and identify with him in the peace that he comes to bring to the world it is costly and it costs the apostle Paul who wrote this beautiful thing in Ephesians 2 it's such a nice message you'd think oh wouldn't everybody love to hear this well no It cost Paul his life as well to proclaim this message in Ephesians 2. Paul was slandered, ridiculed, beaten many times, whipped, imprisoned, falsely accused, condemned, arrested, imprisoned multiple times, and ultimately put to death for this message. We'll see why in a little while, but it cost him a lot to proclaim this message of one new humanity. It did not go down well, and he got it from both Jews and Gentiles. It was inc- as beautiful as it is, it was an incredibly offensive message and it cost him a lot to stand by it and proclaim it and embody it. it. cost him everything and it continues to cost followers of Jesus to stand by and proclaim this message. Peace comes with a cost. Peace with God comes with a cost and standing with Jesus and the peace he comes to bring to the world comes with a cost. Again, it may, you may not be the Apostle Paul. You may not give the ultimate sacrifice like, like Jesus and so many other people in the world today, to this day, in many parts of the world who give their very lives on account of this message and proclaiming the peace of Jesus. It may be more like what Katie began to experience on Serve Up, just identifying with Jesus in a way that suddenly puts you on the out in some way, in some way puts you in the middle of relational tension that wasn't there before and forces you to be confronted with, well, is your allegiance really 100% with Jesus or not? little day-to-day decisions where there is personal and social and relational costs, where you do have to identify with Jesus in ways that may put you at odds with people and people you respect, people you like, people you want to like you. And we need to die to that for Jesus to have our full allegiance. So peace that he brings is costly. And third, the peace we see in Ephesians and the New Testament is divisive. It's real, it is peace, but there is division that comes with it. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at by asking this provocative question and making us kind of stop uh, with his strong statement that he came to bring division. So again, this beautiful thing in Ephesians, this one new humanity, it seems like such a a unifying thing, and it it is. It's a beautiful portrait of reconciliation. No more hostility between people. One new humanity. Peace together. But this was also... creating new divisions at the same time. Even though long-standing enemies were brought together in a beautiful peace and a beautiful reconciliation, this process actually created a whole new set of divisions for them. For Jewish people, this, this was extremely controversial that they could be part of the household of God with Gentile people. For a long time, they had considered Gentile people unclean, unworthy to be in the presence of God, not part of the household and the community of God. And so to now identify as being part of one new humanity with this other group, these other people, it put them at odds with many of their Jewish brothers and sisters and family members and friends. In the Old Testament, God did choose the nation of Israel, that particular nation for himself. And he did so to display his character and display his goodness to the nations. But over time, some people really got caught up with that chosen people thing and began to really believe that they were superior to non-Jewish people. And the gospel here proclaimed in Ephesians 2 cuts against that 100%. There is no longer any room for any sense of national or ethnic superiority within the household of God. And so it bears repeating that there is no place in the household of God, in the church, for an ideology like white supremacy. There's plenty of room for white people, hallelujah, I'm glad about that, but not for white supremacy or any kind of supremacy for that matter. Paul was talking about a different one here, but in our nation, white supremacy is the one giant American idol that we can't quite seem to topple. And there's no place for it in the household and people of God. And so we need to be able to name it as such, as the evil that it is. It is the antithesis to the gospel. And we don't do so to be PC or any other reason or to not be on the wrong side of history, whatever that means. Although, I do want to be on the right side of history, just not American history. I could actually care less if I'm on the right side of American history, whether that's the liberal or conservative version of that. But I want to be on the right side of history of the kingdom of God. That is ultimate history, and as Pastor Tom alluded to, that history culminates in a city where there is every tribe, nation, and culture worshiping together before the throne of Jesus Christ, and so we want to be on the right side of that history. Now don't get me wrong, I love being white. I'm, I'm really glad that that's who I am. I'm proud of my heritage, and I love my family, and I'm, I think it's very good that that's who God created me to be. But again, no room for any sense of supremacy or superiority. And if Ephesians 2 is true, and I believe that it is, it's actually true that those of you who are my brothers and sisters of color in this room who found peace with God through Jesus Christ are actually my people more than my blood relatives are. That's actually, I actually believe that. Now, those of my blood relatives who find peace with God through Jesus Christ can be part of the fam, too. But until they are, they're not my people as much as those of you who have found peace with God are. And that's the truth. It sounds like a radical and crazy thing to say, and I'm sure a lot of my cousins would be really annoyed with me. And a lot of the people in the New Testament times, cousins, Jewish cousins, were really annoyed with them. That all of a sudden they were saying, actually, I'm part of this household of God with Gentiles too and we're all equal before Jesus. And it cost them a lot. So all to say there were new divisions that were created by this one new humanity. And it wasn't just that, it wasn't just hard for Jewish people either. It was very costly for Gentiles and and created a new set of divisions for them. Again, this passage is so beautiful. Oh, you were far off, but now you're brought near. Now you're part of the household of God, too, and you're one. It's so beautiful, but it was very costly for these people as well. For different reasons. So for Gentiles, this meant that the peace that they had found, the peace that they were a part of, this one new humanity they were part of, it all centered around one God, Jesus Christ. And that flew in the face of a cultural polytheism that was deeply ingrained into every part of their lives. They were no longer worshipping any other gods or any other idols, but just one God and one Lord alone, Jesus. And, and this was not just you know, a, a worldview or a heady or theological thing. This, this had implications for day-to-day life. They not only stopped worshipping the big Olympian gods like Zeus and, and ones like that, or Artemis and big public festivals. They were, they were not part of those anymore. But The polytheism of the Greco-Roman world also included household gods that were very pervasive in the day-to-day life of families. Every family had its own household gods. And these were really significant for rituals, day-to-day life. Honoring these household gods was, was part of what they did as families. And all of a sudden, these people were saying, actually, I don't worship those gods anymore. I worship Jesus and Jesus alone. And that brought division right down the household line sometimes. It was very costly to identify with this kind of peace that Jesus came to bring, to be part of this one new humanity. In fact, a lot of the Gentile converts to to Jesus were accused of being atheists because they renounced so many gods. It's like, oh, you don't worship this god anymore, this one, or this one. You're so anti-God. What's the matter with you? And they faced ridicule and scorn and were ostracized because of that as well. So, As beautiful and lovely as the one new humanity is in Ephesians, it actually created a whole new set of divisions. And a lot of them ran right through the home, right through the household, right through the family. And that's what Jesus is getting at with these these tough words here in, in Luke, where he says, From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three, divided father and son, mother and daughter, and so on. Now I want to say that these words of Jesus here are descriptive and not prescriptive. He's describing a reality that is the case often from now on. But he's, it's not prescriptive. He's not saying go start fights. Like if you're in a family of five and you're actually all getting along really well right now, the point is not go find some fight to pick. Or you know find a way that three of you can gang up on the other two over some issue. Because hey, he came to bring division, didn't he? no. It's not prescriptive and there actually is a ton of family division and family brokenness that is, absolutely grieves the heart of God and grieves Jesus and he, he's not pro-division but he is just describing the reality that sometimes a, a particular type of division happens when we place our full trust, our full allegiance to Jesus. We identify fully with the peace that he came to bring between us and God and us and one another and if others in the family don't accept that, it creates division. And that can be hard. He's he's letting us know ahead of time though that this could be the case. So that we don't have a huge crisis perhaps like, like Katie had where all of a sudden it's like, oh wait, there's division, there's tension, there's conflict here. There must be something wrong. I've got to walk away from this. No, he's letting us know now that division can be part of the journey. And I know that's difficult. I have to admit that I see what Jesus is talking about here, mostly from the perspective of the younger people, the sons and the daughters, and it's really just because I've spent my whole adult life working with college students, with people on the younger end. And many of them have come to faith in Jesus or put their futures on the line and made decisions in faithfulness and obedience to Jesus. And in many cases, they do that without the blessing of their family. And it's very difficult. It can be very painful for them. There are a lot of times when People have to choose Jesus' agenda for their life over and against their family's agenda for their life. And obeying Jesus does mean loving your family, so it's not an excuse to just go start treating your family like garbage. But at the end of the day, when it comes to whose agenda are you going to follow for your life, it's Jesus and nobody else. And it can be painful to step out in obedience to him without a parental or a family blessing. I've, I've known people who've actually been formally disowned by their parents because they chose to follow Jesus, or people who just get kind of the low-grade ridicule of you're wasting your life, or I can't believe you believe this stuff, this is not what you have a college degree for, those kind of things. And if that's you, I just want to, you know, if you're someone who is pursuing Jesus, you're you're identifying with the peace that he's brought into your life and into this world, and you're trying to obey Jesus and live faithfully for Jesus, and you're doing so without full blessing from your family or your parents. I'm a new dad now. I may not be old enough to be your dad, but I just want to say I am so proud of you, and I 100% bless your journey of faithfulness and obedience to Jesus. And he sees you, and he honors you, and he is worth it. Some of you are parents, and You've devoted your lives to following Jesus and you've tried your best to instill that in your children, to walk faithfully before them, however imperfectly you do it. You want them to know God and, and in some cases they, they right now think what you stand for and what you believe and what you hold most dear is totally stupid or just completely irrelevant to their lives. And I know that can be very painful as well. And I just want to encourage you, you're doing the right thing. And Jesus is worth it. And there's no better thing that your children or anyone else who looks at your life could see of any more value than your faithfulness and you're putting Jesus first. Your choice is to put Jesus first. He sees them, he honors you, and he is worth it. Some of you have believing parents who bless you in your walk with God or believing children who, who love Jesus the way that you do. And again, don't go pick a fight. Praise God. It's a great gift. It's a wonderful gift, and you ought to appreciate one another for that. But there will be other forms of division that come your way as you give your full allegiance to Jesus. Social, interpersonal tension, people who think what you're doing is stupid, um, accusations that you might be on the wrong side of history in one way or another, low-grade ridicule or ostracization, choices you might have to make to, to stop doing things or stop being around people who cause you to do certain things, to end relationships that, that don't encourage you along your, your journey of following Jesus. And that could be very costly. Or just simply being the odd one out, which a lot of us don't like to do, or dying to our dreams of being able to please everybody. Jesus did say he came to bring some division, so we ought not to be surprised. And I don't want it to be a huge crisis for you when you find yourself in a, in a situation where there is some division on account of your identifying with Jesus. Thankfully, things turned out okay for Katie as we walked through the rest of that week. She did hit a crisis point where she realized, oh, am I going to identify with Jesus or not? And to count some of the cost of what that means. And she has counted the cost and she has weighed the cost and she is continuing to walk with God. And some of her sorority sisters have actually come along with her for the ride, which is great. But but it ought not not to shock us or make us want to ditch the whole thing when suddenly proclaiming the peace that we found with God through Jesus or or stepping out to be his ambassadors of peace and reconciliation in the world in a Jesus-centered, costly way uh, suddenly feels hard. It's not a sign that something horrible has gone wrong. It may be a sign that our allegiance is more and more with Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the gift of this question you asked, this provocative question, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? Thank you for for digging in, for pressing in, for examining our thoughts, and we thank you for the space to examine our thoughts before you, and we hope... Lord, that we are hearing and understanding your thoughts better and we want your thoughts to become more ours, our own. And I want to pray for this community here, Lord. I pray that you would protect us and, and, and stop us if we are ever experiencing division that is just on account of our being rude or, or obnoxious or anything like that. There's all kinds of divisions that that we don't want to be part of, that grieve your heart, and we don't want to be divisive in the wrong ways, but Lord, where we experience division in our lives, where we experience tension, or dissonance on account of identifying with you, would you give us the grace to persevere? Give us the grace to know, Lord, that that you are worth it, you are worth our whole lives, you are worth our whole obedience, and you are worth everything, and any cost that it could cost us to stand with you. And would you make us ambassadors, Lord, of your true Irene peace and shalom in this world. Would you help us as a church to bear the cost of identifying with you and being agents and ambassadors of peace. Peace between our humanity and you, first of all, and peace between one another. Would you help us, Lord, to be your people together and to live out this vision of a one new humanity in a way that glorifies you, brings honor to your name, and shows the world a better way. We thank you for what you've done in the cross and the cost you paid to make it possible. And we pray that you would work it out in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.